0: We are in uh, the holiday spirit, and in light of the season, we're going to begin a new series today, an Advent series. And maybe for some of you, the the phrase, the word Advent is new. It just comes from a Latin word that means coming or arrival. And of course, in, in our context, we're talking about the coming, the arrival of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So today marks the first Sunday of Advent and uh, during the season uh, where we celebrate the, the, the first coming of Jesus, the miraculous birth, the incarnation that we just sang about together, we also look forward to the second coming, the second Advent, uh, for which we continue to long. And I think one of the things I love about Advent is in a season of busyness and power shopping and running around and family time and all these obligations, which are great, Uh, Advent does prompt us to pause and to reflect on all that we have now because of Christ and all that we will have in the future because of Christ's return. And so it's one of the reasons I love this time of year, one reason uh, among many. And if you're looking for a tool to help you sort of recapture this sense of anticipation and longing and wonder of the holidays... Uh, let me let me uh, recommend to you this uh, Advent devotional reading. Uh, it's uh, by Sarah Rice, um, uh, our own Capshaw member and Pastor Adam's uh, wife, I guess best known as John Wicks' mom. But um, this is by uh, Sarah Rice, and I had a chance to read through it a few weeks ago. It's absolutely terrific, it's phenomenal. You can, you can pick one up for free. You can get a hard copy at the welcome desk which is right at the doors and to your left. You can get a, an electronic copy a couple of different ways. You can go on to our website, Capshaw.org and go under the resource tab where you'll find a, a way to get a hold of it there. You can also go to Capshaw.org advent uh, and you'll find a daily reading uh, throughout all of December and not only is Sarah a gifted writer, which you'll see as soon as you, you, you take this up, um, but most importantly, she recognizes and understands how all the Scripture points us to Jesus. And so every page, every devotional has at the bottom a Christ connection, again, which is just terrific. So please uh, take advantage of that. They are free, and I know Sarah's put a lot of work. Sarah and Adam both put a lot of work into this, so I encourage you to take advantage of that. Let me pray, and we'll uh, get into the Word Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Emmanuel, God with us. We must be quick to confess that, as Job did, that there's no way that we could find ourselves to you, that we could make our way to you by our own ingenuity, by our own reasoning, by our own ability. The only way we could ever be made right with you is if you would come to us. And Father, this is the beauty and the majesty of the incarnation father we pray that you would stir our hearts this morning with a greater affection for you a greater confidence in you we pray that you would deepen our faith i pray lord for those who are struggling this morning pray that you would comfort them i pray for those who have come here this morning and though they would never say this to anyone they perhaps believe on some level they have it all together and they're hoping that the sermon is good for someone else And Father, I pray that you would soften the hearts of those of us who are so inclined to self-righteousness. I pray, Lord, that you would expand our understanding of you, and I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be changed by the power of your Spirit through your Word, which pierces to the innermost parts of our being. Father, will you move this morning in an unbelievable way, in a way that would cause us to say, this was the Lord's work we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn me to Genesis chapter 1. And uh, if you're new with us and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have Bibles at the information desk at the Welcome Center. I guess it's called uh, different things. You can go out there and we, we would love to give you uh, a Bible. I was sitting, we were sitting around the table at Thanksgiving uh, just this last what, week and a half ago as a family and we just finished having a terrific meal prepared by my wife and my mother-in-law and so my, my immediate family was there and my, my in-laws were there and and I read to them a story uh, from Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, one of my favorites and uh, Yancey tells the story of a 17 year old girl from Traverse City, Michigan uh, who grew up in a strict home with an abundance of rules. There were rules about everything. Rules about what she could wear, rules about who she could talk to, how she chewed her gum there, was, there were pro, uh, uh, limits on how she would text, uh, nose rings, whatever, uh, necklines and skirt lengths, all of these things. And with all these rules, she became very frustrated and even angry. And she became so angry that she ran away. She ran away to Detroit, Michigan. She thought, of all the places in the world, they won't look for me here. Maybe they think, they'll think I've gone to Florida or California, some warmer place. But instead, she went to Detroit. And, of course, she was scared and naive and didn't really know what to expect. Right away, she met a man who started buying her gifts, buying her things. In exchange, he, he started asking her for favors, first favors for him and then favors for other men. She felt gross about what she was doing. She began to hate herself for what she was doing. But this man kept giving her more and more stuff, a man that she would call boss, provided for her, gave her gifts, gave her money, even gave her drugs, which she would begin to take in order to numb her pain and her guilt. When she got really sick and she could no longer perform these favors, she could no longer cater to this man's clients. She, she was so sick she could barely move. He ultimately, and he kicked her to the curb, literally. Took her to a place and right in the heart of the city and dropped her off, physically pushed her out. She found herself... Physically cold and freezing and hungry, emotionally a wreck. Sitting downtown next to a skyscraper she's, as she's freezing and shivering she found a few boxes and, and she started putting, putting them around her in order to warm up and she in that moment she thought you know even my dog eats better than this. My dog is treated better at home. She started to think about going home. She started to think about what it would be like to return home. And so eventually she mustered up the courage to call her mom and dad. No answer. She found a phone, called. She left a voicemail, then another voicemail. In the second voicemail, she said, Dad, I'm sorry. This is my fault. Could, can you, ever, could you ever forgive me? I was thinking about coming home. I'll be taking a bus from, Traverse City to, to, uh, from Detroit to Traverse City, and I'll be there at midnight tomorrow. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll see you takes seven hours from Detroit to Traverse City and uh, as she's riding in this window seat in the bus she's looking out she sees the snowfall she sees places where it's accumulated and she starts to rehearse her speech to her parents what's she going to say to them she starts to go over in her mind how she will first talk to her parents if they're there at all she doesn't really know finally the bus pulled up to the station 15 minutes folks that's all you have 15 minutes the bus driver echoed. She checked herself in the compact mirror looking to see uh, how she looked, wondering if her parents would notice the marks on her arms, the stains on her teeth and fingers. She went over the scenario a thousand times, but nothing she ever imagined could prepare her for what she would see. There in the cold, sterile bus terminal, were 40 people cheering her name, shouting for her with joy, with a big banner that read, Welcome Home. Out from the crowd came running her dad, who hugged her so tightly she thought he was going to crush her. She started to say, Dad, I'm so sorry. He stopped her. He interrupted. He said, Baby girl, there's no time for that. You'll be late for the party. There's a banquet waiting for you at home. Now, I'm glad I got through that story. I didn't get through it so well during Thanksgiving. I had a bit of an emotional time. But I, uh, the thing is, that story is meant to teach us about God, of course, the grace and the mercy of God. It is sort of a modern-day take on the parable of the prodigal son. But underneath that sort of main layer, there's another point, and it has to do with the importance of hope. Of course, this teenage girl didn't know what to expect when she called. She left two voicemails, didn't know how her family would receive her. But she did have hope that maybe, maybe her mom and dad would receive her again. If she'd run out of hope, she would never would have made the trek home and she likely would have died there in the city. And actually, life without hope is not that much different than death, is it? We see this for people who struggle, people who, when they lose hope, the man struggling with a terminal illness, the woman in a loveless marriage the employee working for a boss that he can't seem to please, the child who has parents who are always demanding, but they never seem to be satisfied. When hope is lost, so is the effort to persevere. Well, where do we find hope in our world? Where do we find hope when we look around? We see how messed up our world is. We see how broken our relationships are. We see how perverse our own hearts are, our own selfishness. The holiday may offer a bit of a distraction but we still know that our world is not right. And even though this is called the most wonderful time of the year, and I love this time of year. I love so many things about this year. And it is indeed the most wonderful time of the year, but it's not so wonderful for everyone. In fact, for some people, you know, this is the darkest time of the year. For some people, this is actually the loneliest time of the year. I read uh, one person's post and And I wrote about this a little bit in the foreword of this devotional that I mentioned. A man who lamented, my kids are grown up, their mother and I are divorced, our family is broken. Christmas is no longer my favorite time of the year. In fact, I dread it because it triggers so much regret, so much sadness, so much guilt, so much shame, and a deep sense of loss. Now, as we we, we approach the end of the calendar year, we, we look around, we say, yeah, things are not right, there's political unrest, racial tension, struggles even in our own home. We say, where do we find hope? Well, for the Christian, our hope comes in a person who is revealed to us through a story. And over the next four weeks in this Advent series, we're going to look at, we're going to zoom out a little bit, we're going to look at that story, the story of redemption, the story of hope, and we're going to look at the identity of the one who's revealed in it. So in order to make sense of that story, we have to begin at the beginning. So let's go to Genesis chapter 1, and let me read uh, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. This is God's word. Uh, before we get into it, let me, let me just point out something I think is so important that, now Genesis 1, of course, will detail the rest of God's creating work, but you'll notice there's not even the slightest attempt to actually prove God. None of the so-called classical proofs. None of the arguments for God. This, the Bible just begins with God. In the beginning, God. This is how the Bible begins. With this God who has forever existed. Before we were created, we didn't exist. But God, as we just read, he never came into existence because he always was. And God can never go out of existence because he will always be the same being that he always has been. He was there in the beginning. He was there before the beginning. Before God created time, God existed. Well, what most people don't realize is that Israel was not the only nation, of course, in the ancient Near East to have a creation story. Stories of God's creating the world were everywhere in the ancient Near East. In fact, practically every culture in the ancient Near Eastern world had an explanation, some sort of explanation as to how the world began. For example, in Egypt, in ancient Babylon, there was a, a story, a popular creation story known as the Enuma Elish, which maybe you've read about. I think about it, it was back in 1849 that some fragments of this Babylonian story were recovered. It featured the god Marduk, not to be confused with Marmaduke the dog, but this is Marduk the god who was said to be the creator of the sun and the moon and the stars and then humankind whom he created to serve him. Now amid all these creation stories, Moses authors uh, Genesis in order to reassure the Israelite descendants, and of course us by extension, that there's only one God, there's only one God who brought into the world, brought the world into existence out of nothing, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who has no equals or rivals, the God who is sovereign over all things, and the God who laughs at other so-called gods. Jeremiah picks up on this in his book in Jeremiah 10. He says this to the people of Israel. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at them. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried. They cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. The creation account is a definitive affirmation that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is the only true living God. And that every other created thing owes its origin and existence to Him. Here's our first point this morning as we kind of look at and set the stage for the story. Everything that exists was created by God and is continually dependent upon Him for subsistence. In other words, unlike the gods of the ancient Near East, remember there were all kinds of creation myths and stories, and in every people group, every culture uh, had their own creation story. But those gods were gods that, that made things and then stepped back. They were, they were impersonal forces. Gods that you tried to please and appease in a variety of ways, but you couldn't really know these gods. They, they created things, they took a step back, and they let creation unfold But the God of the Bible, the true and living God, is constantly engaged in in maintaining and sustaining his creation. The writer of Hebrews says he sustains all things by his powerful word. A couple of years ago, I was teaching uh, one of my daughters how to make pancakes. And if I'm candid with you, I'm a terrible, terrible cook. I mean, I'm, I'm horrible at it. And this is because I... I don't know if it's a personality defect, but what I do is I don't really pay a lot of attention to measurements and so on. I just kind of guesstimate. And I don't really pay attention to time either. I just sort of, you know, when, it, when things look ready, I just, you know, I take them out. And so I'm not very good. The things that I make don't typically turn out well, but I'm really, really good at making pancakes. They're beautifully golden brown, crispy on the edges. And I was, I was trying to show my daughter how to make pancakes daddy's way, and which means, you know, you, which means, and I'm gonna, I'll share a little bit of my secret with you. It means you turn the heat really high and you use a lot of butter. And so I got the heat really high and, and, and my daughter said, hey, Daddy, can I put the butter in? I said, of course, sure. So she takes a big scoop of butter and puts it in. And then she kind of shrieked at how the butter, how quickly the butter disappeared in this hot skillet. It was gone in a split second. Well, that's the way it would be for you and me if God stopped thinking about us and sustaining us every moment by his grace. Our reality is so dependent upon God that if he took his mind off us for a second, we would cease to exist. This is how dependent we are on God. We sing songs like we did this morning, I Need You, but I'm not sure we often really understand just how deeply and badly we need God. We need him for salvation, but for so much more than that. Unlike you and I, who exist moment by moment by the mercy of God, you know, all it takes is one misstep into traffic, right? And we're gone. God is self-existent. He is self-sustaining. It's an attribute of God that theologians call his aseity. He is outside of us. He is separate from us. He doesn't need us for anything. But he can be known by us, unlike all of these so-called gods of the ancient Near East, this God, the living God, can be known by us. Not only did God create us, but he made us for his glory. He made us to showcase the beauty of his manifold perfections and to glorify and honor and enjoy him with our lives. And that's the way things were going early on. Adam and Eve were created to glorify and enjoy God. They were actually doing that very thing. They were walking with God. They were enjoying God's fellowship. But then things would take a shocking and horrible turn in Genesis 3. So flip a couple pages over to Genesis 3. And let me read verses 8 through 13. The account of Adam and Eve. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Of course, God knew where Adam and Eve were. He was again showing that he's a pursuing God. And Adam said, uh, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. Now, I'm covering, I'm skipping over, you know, a, a chapter and then some. And so, I have to point out that God didn't have to create, okay? God didn't need to create. He wasn't missing something that by creating would sort of fill out his existence. You know, there's a, there's a worship song, a popular worship song that says, you didn't want heaven without us. And now, thankfully, because Pastor Chris is theologically astute, we don't sing that. That's nonsense, that's nonsense. It's not God wasn't up in heaven saying, you know what? If I just create something, I'm going to feel a lot better about myself. If I just create somebody, you know, I'm really going to enjoy my surroundings a lot more. That's not the way it worked. God didn't have to create. He wasn't missing anything. He was not lonely. God creates because he loves to give. God creates because it's a very godlike thing to do. God didn't need us so that heaven would be complete. He created because it was his delight to fashion after his own image people who would enjoy him and participate in the good things that he'd made. And to those people, Adam and Eve specifically, he gave them everything. Everything was good. It was all for their enjoyment. The only stipulation was this, Genesis 2, 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Everything was theirs. To be enjoyed, to be filled out, to cultivate. All of culture was at their disposal. Just do with it what you will, God says. You're you're made in my image, so use your creative abilities to, to expand creation, to fill it out culturally. Everything was theirs, but the fruit of one tree. And Satan went to work in creating doubt in God's goodness. That's where rebellion always begins, actually. We start to doubt the goodness of God. We start to doubt in the goodness of his provisions. It's fascinating to me, actually, that Satan's first trick, have you ever noticed this, was to introduce legalism into humanity. He questions Eve. He says, come on, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? He knows God didn't say that. That's not what God said. God says you can eat of any tree except one. But the devil is working on Eve, and Eve replies in Genesis 3:3, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Neither shall you touch it? God didn't say that. Well, why does Eve say that? There's no indication God said anything about not touching the tree, but right away, higher standards are introduced for spirituality standards that would lead to frustration and despair. And sure enough, Eve succumbs to the serpent's cunning and takes the fruit of the forbidden tree and eats it. She gives some to Adam, and Adam eats it as well. And at that moment, everything changed forever. I was asked to uh, speak about a year and a half ago at an interfaith dialogue where I and a Muslim imam were the keynotes, and we had this back and forth Q&A in front of a whole bunch of students. And the students had an opportunity to ask questions, and One of the points that I made was when Adam and Eve sinned, it was like someone took a giant rock and threw it into a completely still and placid lake. The ripple effects would be ever-expanding. And they would touch everything. The ripple effects would expand. Nothing would be unaffected. Every created thing would be tainted as the curse of sin would rest on the world. Here's our second point this morning. The perfect goodness of God's created world was wholly marred by man's, mankind's rebellion in the garden. The perfect goodness of God's created world, wholly marred by mankind's rebellion in the garden. We might say it this way, everything that's wrong with the world right now, every problem that we face, every challenge that you endure, from personal struggles to Sadness, anger, bitterness, hopelessness, anxiety, frustration, sinful temptation, the conflicts throughout the world, oppression, hatred, poverty, racism, all of it goes back to Genesis 3. What happened on that day in that garden by that tree. That's where it all stems from. Every evil in the world, every problem that we face, every fear that you encounter, it all goes back to what happened in the garden by the tree? The fight that you had with your spouse this week? The struggle that I had in my own family to lead well and to lead patiently? The nagging cough that just won't go away? The pressure we all feel at work to succeed? The tension between you and your son, between you and your daughter? All of it goes back to what happened on that day in that garden by that tree. It changed everything. And in the passage I just read, some of the results of the curse will be explained. Uh, let me just read uh, verses 14 through 16, and I'm not sure if I, I may or not have submitted this to uh, Josh for the screens. Uh, then the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, Because of Adam and Eve's revolt against God, we see this long list of curses. Long list of curses. Because of Adam and Eve's revolt, childbirth is now excruciatingly painful, I'm told. Uh, women go through such pain that they often say things in the midst of giving birth they would never, ever say in any other time. Maybe you can. You have a sister or wife, you say, I never thought she would talk like that. There's so much pain that goes on it. Giving birth is now painful. That's why they say a woman goes into labor. Every one of Janine's four C-sections was difficult and exhausting. I was totally worn out. And I'm sure that it was hard for her as well. But where, you know, this this, this surgery, whatever, however the child comes in, it's it's painful. It's a labor. And it's not just women who are affected. God goes on to explain that, that to man that because he ate of the forbidden fruit, work now becomes difficult. How many people do you know that get excited to go to work every day? I, uh, I taught Perspectives, if, I don't know, I guess it was a couple of months ago now, and I was Perspectives on the World Christian Movement, which is a terrific class that we're going to be offering a one-day uh, seminar here. I think it's in February. Um, but I was teaching this class at a different church in the area, and there was a young man who kept asking questions and questions. And, and I made a comment at the end that I was going to go to Dairy Queen when I was done. And he said, hey, can I go with you? I said, okay, sure. I, I, let's just meet there because I had to go home and uh, pick up one of, one of my kids. And so I, I met him there, a young guy, probably 24 maybe, just finished up. He's an engineer and uh, had just, fin- just graduated, been in work for six months. He said, I got I to be honest with you. Like I'm thankful for my job, but I can't stand it. I can't stand it. I don't want to go to work every day. And he told me how he said, I'm going to try to make it five years. I don't know if I can make it five years. Now, so, now you know, we like different people enjoy their jobs in a different way, but we all recognize it's work. It's a labor. Another effect is the earth would become hard to manage. Verse 18: thorns and thistles would smother healthy planets or uh, plants rather. Foods would come by the sweat of our brow. Verse 19: animals would fight and kill and destroy. The whole fabric of human life is turned upside down. All of creation, Paul says in Romans 8, is groaning, waiting for. The redemption that Christ will bring. All these things happen. And you know, these things are all bad. These things are all hard. But the worst consequence was spiritual. The Westminster Confession explains it this way. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body they being the root of all mankind the guilt of this sin was imputed and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation in other words again from that very moment in the garden every human being who's been ever born since is born In sin. In sin. So, let me tell you a secret. No one is ever born a Christian. Okay, sometimes people, I was born a Christian, you weren't. No one is ever born a Christian. We're born separated from God. Every human being comes into existence in a state of sinfulness and under the wrath of God. In other words, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. It's the very outflow of a heart that's broken and corrupted and against God. We're born self-lovers instead of God-lovers. Insistent on doing things our own way from the moment we arrive on this earth. We're born wanting to get our way. If you've ever been around a baby or a toddler or an elementary school kid or a junior high or, or any person, you know this is true. From the very beginning, we want our way, not God's way. We don't want to be under authority. Adam and Eve would find out just how corrupt things would become in a hurry. Just think how horrified they must have been to realize that their firstborn son would grow up to become a murderer. Sin forever corrupted the world. Now, this is all very bad news. You say, come on, this is Christmas. That's so depressing. This is a time for elves and eggnog and stockings hung by the chimney with care. I know. I'm sorry. But there is good news. Embedded in Genesis chapter 3 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. What theologians call the proto-euangelium. The first glimpse of the gospel. Look at verse, look at uh, 315 again. Genesis 315. This is God speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. So much of this chapter is really bad. And this is bad news for the serpent, but it's very good news for us. The ESV, which I just read, translates verse 15, he will bruise your head. But the Hebrew word, which is a complicated word that doesn't appear very often, um, it's, use, it, it's used here for bruise could actually be translated batter or crush. In fact, it's the same Hebrew cognate that's used in Job chapter 9 where God explains what happens to those who dare to defy him. They are crushed as with a storm. So the, so the serpent to the serpent, God says, there's one coming and he will crush your head. Even as God is announcing all the horrors Of the curse, God makes it clear that He's not abandoned humanity nor His creation. Evil will not reign forever. Evil will not have the last word. The seed of the woman will finally crush the head of the serpent. And the Bible, of course, traces that seed from the woman, from uh, Adam to Seth to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, then from Judah ultimately to David. And David ultimately, of course, To the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of Satan and restore everything that was lost by the fall, including restoration of God with his broken and sinful people. The German reformer Johannes Brenz writes this, His heel has the meaning that the son of the virgin, who is our Lord Jesus Christ, was going to blast with venom. That is, depose and destroy all of Satan's power, majesty, and dominion. But in turn, Satan was going to infect with venom, that is, afflict Christ with every kind of adversity in his humanity, as much in his own person as in his members who are believers in him. So let me translate that. Here's what he's saying. On this fallen world, we will suffer. You will be hurt by people, and you will hurt other people. I will be sinned against, and I will sin against other people. You will be abandoned at times. You will feel alone. You will feel tired. You will feel helpless. And if you're in Christ, you will be ridiculed. You will be mocked. You will face opposition. As long as Satan is in this world wreaking havoc you and I will suffer. But, one day, Jesus will crush the head of that liar and deceiver and not only completely and utterly destroy him, but also reverse all of the effects of the curse that Satan brought about with his deception. That is, in fact, why Jesus came. And how do we know that? The victory has already been announced and demonstrated by the cross and the empty tomb. At the cross, Jesus proved that Satan would not have the final say. At the cross, Jesus took the pain and the anguish and the shame of Adam's disobedience and our disobedience on himself. The perfect Lamb of God suffered so that believing in him, we might have true life. Not some sort of faux happiness that we enjoy at the holidays. Not some sort of sing-song existence where really we're hurting inside. But real peace with God. Real hope, real joy, real wholeness, real forgiveness. The kind that nobody can take away from us. The kind that nobody can steal from you. How do we know that? How do we know that Jesus will do that again? It was demonstrated by the cross and the empty tomb. Here's our final point this morning. Jesus came to set right everything that was made wrong by the sin of our first parents. Most importantly, he came to reconcile man to God. Now we're going to see over the next three weeks or four weeks, we're going to look at, next week we're going to look at the prophet's declaration. Then we're going to look at the angelic announcement. Then we're going to look at the actual birth of Jesus. And we're going to see over and over again with greater and greater clarity, this mission of Jesus to save his people from their sins. So let me end this morning where we started with a need for hope. If you're suffering this morning from any of the things I just mentioned, loneliness, anxiety, fear, despair, you can know for certain if you're in Christ that one day all of those things will be obliterated. All those things will end. Jesus Christ will one day make everything completely and totally right. Totally restore shalom, peace, wholeness, and well-being. If you are in Christ this morning, you have the unshakable hope for the future, but it gets even better than that. Even while we wait, even as we exist in the in-between time, between the incarnation of Christ and the return of Christ, what the scriptures call the last days, even at this very moment, while you wait... You are loved by God with an everlasting love, with an unshakable love that no one can steal from you, that you can't even lose by living. You can't lose it. Neither things above nor things below, no spiritual nor physical, nor enemies. Nor, no, no one can take that. No one can separate you from the love of God in Christ. While we await his second advent, his return, you belong to God. And nothing will ever change that. Not your sins, not your failures, not your shortcomings. This morning, you are God's treasured child. And He, as you see, as we're going to see, God has this overarching, infinitely wise plan. And His plan is for your good and His glory. And those things, as Jonathan Edwards says, are never at odds with each other. If you're in Christ, all this is yours. If you're not in Christ... If you've not truly turned from your self-loving, self-seeking ways and run to Jesus in repentant faith, you still are resting under the wrath of God. There are a lot of we can we can stand to be at odds with some people, but you don't want to be at odds with God. Janine and I were walking in Chick Fil A. The this is maybe a year ago and we met the brand new principal of our daughter's uh, elementary school. And he was a little further up in line. Was, it was a long line. And I said, Janine, I, I want to go up. And I was so impressed with this guy. I mean, I just, I, his leadership, his humility, he, his organization. I mean, just everything, the way he dealt. So I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I hope people don't think I'm cutting. I'm going to go up and just try to encourage him. And I went up to him and I said, hey, I, I just want to let you know our, our daughters and, sixth grade or whatever it is and i said you know she, she we're just so impressed with the way you're leading and your direction your vision for the school and i'm just really thankful for you and it was like i mean he didn't know what to say i you know he said you know I, i'm so thankful that you would say that because this is my first year i'm getting complaints every day i got people that that are that are at odds with me people want me to do things differently said so i feel like i'm at odds against everybody I said, look, I'm a pastor. Tell me about it, right? I said, no, look, your your approval ratings are up and down. They're going to be up and down. But here's the thing. We can stand to be at odds with some people. But you don't want to ever be at odds with God. And if you've not turned to Christ in repentant faith, you are at odds with God. You are under his wrath. You are separated from him. But the one that God talked about in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, died on the cross, was raised again on the third day, and now is inviting you, he's beckoning you into a relationship with himself. You can turn, you can confess your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, that he died on the cross, not just for the sins of the world, but for your sins and my sins. And you can trust in that. And God says, when you do, I'm going to make you brand new. I'm going to I'm going to destroy I'm going to absolutely cleanse your past and I'm going to make you brand new. All this is ours in Christ. Let's pray.